Heavenly Father, we are thankful for uh, just the ability that we have to be a part of the greater body of Christ, to be one of the many churches that gather together. Lord, we, we do look forward to that time where we're dancing on the streets that are golden. We look forward to uh, where there's a, a place where there is no division between churches, that there is no uh, regional division, there's no denominational or theological division, uh, that all together, all the believers will be with you eternally in heaven, celebrating and worshiping. I, I can't even imagine uh, the volume of worship when we're all together, all the saints throughout history in the presence of you, Father. I just, I look so forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, we do want to continue to recognize our connection to other churches, and we do that here by prayer. Uh, Lord, so I would pray, uh, first of all, for a mission that we support in Calvary Chapel Kennett, a church that we have a financial investment in, but also a, a personal investment as we've sent out Pastor Brian to pastor that church. Uh, Lord, it's a difficult ministry. He's in the poorest county uh, in Missouri, uh, has one of the highest drug rates in Missouri, uh, and then they have the added benefit of being uh, part of the, the Bible Belt down there, and so they're their version of Christianity for some is very wrapped up in the traditions of what church they go to, not so much into the worship of you. A difficult place for Brian and Tammy to minister, Lord. I pray that you would give them grace in ministry down there, that they would be able to uh, proclaim the gospel uh, in such a clear way that those who are uh, in, in need of salvation would hear it and respond, and that you would do a mighty work through that church. Lord, we also thank you for Golden Prairie Baptist Church, uh, for Pastor Jeff, uh, one of a number of pastors I've known out there over the years. I uh, had the chance to pray with some of them, Lord, but I would pray for Jeff today that as he preaches the word, that that word would be active and it would be living in the hearts and the lives of the believers in that church, that they would hear and they would grow, uh, that they would uh, become uh, stronger believers there, that they would begin then to minister to the families and the communities around them. Uh, Lord, and that for even that church that's kind of out uh, in the middle of things, out in the middle of the prairie, Lord, that there would still be a number of those who would be saved through that ministry, uh, both locally, but then as the folks in that church go out and take the word that they've learned and apply it to the life of their uh, believing, their, their neighbors and their friends. Father, we also do thank you for our ministries here in this church. A number of volunteers make all of this happen, but tonight I thank you for the sound and for the video ministry and the work that they do behind the scenes. Uh, pretty much nobody uh, recognizes them unless they hit the wrong button, and so Lord, I just thank you that uh, tonight we can uh, pray that you would honor and bless them for their service to you here, that they are uh, as active in worship as any of us are, Lord, and so we thank you for these things. Uh, Lord, we pray for our own church service tonight. Uh, we're going to be in your word, and we know that your word never returns void. We know that you have purposes for why you've written every word that you've given us. Uh, I would just ask that tonight you would reveal those, those purposes to us individually, that uh, you would take the word read and the word preached, and you would apply it to the life of the individual believers. Uh, Father, would you allow your Holy Spirit to be our great teacher tonight? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so for you who aren't or haven't been around for a while, we are in the book of Revelation, but we're finishing the book of Revelation tonight. Revelation chapter 22, concordance is not a chapter. We won't be going into that verse by verse. Um, but chapter 22 will bring us to the end of the book of Revelation. And so just so you know the roadmap going forward for the next couple of weeks, next week I will be in the book of Jude. 
Uh, so I would ask that you guys would just take this next week and read the book of Jude every day. It takes like three minutes to read the book of Jude. It's a small letter, uh, just like 25 verses, I think. So if you would just sit down each day, read the book of Jude. God's going to show you things in His Word, and then He's going to uh, reinforce and show you new things when you come in and hear the Word preached at the end of the week. It's going to make the sermons more powerful. It's going to really impact your life, I think, uh, if you can get in that habit of preparing your heart for the teaching. Uh, then I'm actually going to be gone for eight days, two Sundays. Uh, maybe not gone, gone, but uh, my daughter is getting married. And so Sheila and her have been working really hard for months to plan this wedding. I thought I could throw them eight days at the end, the last couple stretches, the last stretch here to help out a little bit. Uh, so I'll be taking two Sundays where I won't be teaching necessarily. I won't be teaching at all, but I might still be here. We'll see how that works out. Uh, but in my stead, Tom and Jerry are actually going to cover things for us. So. Uh, not the Tom and Jerry from the cartoon. Pastor Tom will teach one week, and Pastor Jerry Singh will teach one week. He's one of our elders here, but he's also the leader of One Way Evangelistic Ministries. Uh, and so, a great opportunity to hear for some other voices. And I have no idea what they're going to be teaching you. My only instructions were, it has to be from the Bible, and it can't be from the book of Jude because that's mine, right? So uh, that's kind of what they have uh, going forward. And then when I get back in the middle of August then, or a, uh, I guess a, a weekend to August, when I get back, uh, we're going to have a one-week sermon where we're kind of just going to be reminding ourselves who we are as a church and celebrating our 25th anniversary as a church. So that's kind of cool. Um, a little weird because normally we have like a big barbecue and stuff in August and uh, do things like that, but it doesn't look like that's really going to be a feasible idea this year. Probably would not be wise. It's a good way to get yourself on the news, and we don't want to be on the news for those types of things. So, uh, but we'll find some way to try to make it a special day to just remember the the great things that God's done for us as a church. He really blessed us in in ways that I couldn't have imagined over the years. Uh, and then I will start the Gospel of Matthew. So. We are moving right along in the Scriptures, but now let's move right along in Revelation chapter 22. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, I've broken it down into three parts here. The first five verses uh, is actually a continuation of chapter 21. Uh, so if I was the one translating the Bible, or not translating the Bible, if I was the one breaking up the chapters of the Bible, I would have put these first five verses here in chapter 22. I would have put those in chapter 21. Uh, now, that doesn't that sounds bad, but the part I think we need to remember is that the verses, the numbers of the verses and the chapters, those are not inspired by God in the way that the, the words are. Uh, that for years, this was just a book, and there were no chapters in there, and there were no verses in there. It was just a series of books. Uh, but over time, it became obvious that it's difficult to tell people what you're reading. And so uh, you'll see this a couple places in Scripture. It'll say, well, somewhere in the prophet of Joel, it says, and then people would have to read through the whole prophecy of Joel to find out what that guy was talking about. So some Bible scholars said it would be easier if we had a way to make a, a system, a roadmap to find verses of Scripture. So they divided up. First, one guy divided up the chapters, and then later another guy divided up the verses within the chapter. So it would just be easier to find those key verses that you really like. But again, if I was dividing this up, chapter 22 wouldn't actually start until verse 6 because these first five verses are a continuation of the description of New Jerusalem. So last week we looked at this New Jerusalem. Uh, we looked at it being filled with the glory of God. We looked at these ginormous walls that are all the way around it and the 12 gates, three on each side, and the 12 foundation stones. We looked at all of that. Well, we're going to see a few more things about inner city Jerusalem now, uh, inner city New Jerusalem. 
uh, at this point. So we'll see that in the first five verses. What we see from then on, verse 6 through 9, uh, is going to be an angel of God testifying that the words of this book are true, that the words of this prophecy are true, followed by, followed by verses 10 through 20, where it's Jesus testifying that the words of this book are true. And so the way I look at that really is uh, it's like at the end of a legal document. I don't know if you guys have ever had to get into legal documents, but there's all this kind of legal mumbo-jumbo in there. And at the very end, you're supposed to sign it, and it says something like, you know, I being of sound mind and nobody holding a gun to my head, I believe everything I said is true, whatever. And you write that and you sign it, and then they have a notary that signs under it and says, I witnessed this. This is truly them signing this sheet of paper. That's kind of what you have at the end here of the book of Revelation. You have this angelic being, and you have Jesus himself saying, this stuff that John wrote down, this is true. And so it's just uh, God's uh, reminder to us that these things are true. So let's pick it up in verse 1. We'll finish with our description in New Jerusalem before we get to those, uh, those uh, testimonies at the end. It says this in verse 1, Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Well, I'm ahead of myself again. See, when you do this three times, you forget what you've done and what you haven't done. Uh, so as I'm reading these first five verses, your job will be to listen to this and see if you can find what portions of New Jerusalem are being introduced here. So there's going to be a couple of things that we're going to be introduced here in these five things. And so as I'm reading, if you would listen actively, maybe you can spot those things. Uh, but if you can't, Rocio has all the answers and she'll give them to you. So uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the, lamp, of the light of a lamp nor the uh, light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So, Rocio, what are the things that you see in here? All right, so what we see is river of water of life, Okay. street, Street. Tree of life. Tree of life. Throne of God and of the Lamb. Throne of God, yeah. And bondservants. And the bondservants. So five new things that we're told we're going to see in this new Jerusalem. First, you're going to see a river of the water of life. Uh, this is something I think we see in other places in Scripture. You'll see it certainly in the Old Testament prophets of Ezekiel and Zechariah, where they talk about this new kingdom of God. We'll have this river of life through it. Uh, I would add to that also, uh, Jesus talks about the living water when he meets with the woman at the well, uh, but just kind of these promised forward type things, this river of life, of the water of life. Uh, that we'll see this river is kind of strange in that the source of the river is not a lake or an ocean somewhere. The source of this river is actually the throne of God. So the river, the water of the river of life comes out of the throne of God. And of course, if the throne of God is there in the New Jerusalem, who else is there? God. God himself. And so that's pretty exciting for us to recognize in this new Jerusalem, this heavenly kingdom, uh, that we'll have this river of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, because God the Father and the Son are reigning as king, as the uh, uh, eternal kings in the new kingdom. 
Uh, now, weirdly enough, this description says uh, that the, the river of the water of life is actually in the middle of the street, which seems like an odd place to put a river, right? Uh, unless it's a river boat, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you have the little... Oh, you think there'll be gondolas in heaven? That would be totally awesome. Okay, sorry. First and second service did not get that, just so you know. You guys are special. I didn't even think about gondolas in heaven. But, so, uh, imagine this kind of giant street that runs through the middle of New Jerusalem that has in the middle of it this river of life, but then on the banks of the river, there's also going to be what says here, the tree of life that she spoke of here. And then we, so we have a river with trees on the sides and a giant street, and it's all just kind of running down the middle. And so kind of that main entrance into the new kingdom is going to have kind of this beautiful scene uh, that you would have there. Um, Now, the tree of life is something we see earlier in the Bible. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, after God created everything, he put them in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, right? Well, then as you follow the the story forward into chapter 3, the serpent comes on and he tricks Eve into eating eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God had said not to do that. And then Adam follows her in that sin. And so now we have a problem. People have access to the tree of eternal life, but they also now have the knowledge of good and evil. And so if God had let them continue to have access to the tree of life, what we would have brought into eternity is evil would have come in with us. The knowledge of evil would have come with us. So God actually sections off the tree of life, and it says that he uh, actually has a flaming sword there that looks all directions and a cherubim. And so that's to prevent us from getting back to that. He removes Adam and Eve from the garden. That tree of life makes its appearance again in heaven because we are going to have eternal life in heaven. Now, the tree is a little bit weird. Uh, Number one, uh, it bears 12 kinds of fruit. And I actually don't know of any tree that actually bears 12 kinds of fruit. That's not the way that normally works. But that's what's going to happen with the tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruit. I don't know what 12 fruits would be. I don't think I could name 12 fruits. But there will be 12 fruits uh, that will be on that tree. And it's going to yield this fruit every single month, which again, that's atypical, right? Usually there's a quick season and you might bear some fruit, but this is an every month type season where it's bearing fruit. And then you get this interesting phrase at the end that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so apparently they're just full of essential oils, right? For the healing of the nations. Um, I'm, <laughs> and I'm not, no, I, actually as a Christian, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to make jokes about healing oils, so I just won't. But um, <laughs> the part that to me is weird about that is what do we need healed from? Because there's no longer any sin, there's no longer any pain, there's no longer any death. I don't believe we're in heaven slowly dying, and if we don't get to the tree of life in time every week for our, our, our you know, leaf rubbing or whatever that works, squeezing out the essential oils out of the leaf, right? Like that we're not going to somehow live eternally. I don't think that's what it is, uh, but I do think this is a reminiscent idea going back to the garden of God's original plan the way God says, essentially, this is the way it could have been if there had been no sin, you would have had this access, but we don't need that in heaven, and so it's really just for us a memory. It's an idea of what God was willing to do to bring healing to the nations uh, in the past, because all of this is just a restoration of things He had intended from the beginning. 
Uh, verse 3, of course, is really cool. There's no longer any curse there. Uh, but it also says that his bond servants are there. And I believe that is us, the believers in Jesus Christ. We are, throughout Scripture, called his bond servants. And then it tells us a few things about the bond servants. First and foremost, they will serve him. And this is important. Sometimes, again, when we think of heaven, we just think it's eternal singing and boredom, right? We're just going to be sitting on a cloud for all eternity playing on a harp. No, there's so much more going on in heaven and things. It's, it's eternal life. There's life when we get into heaven, when we get into the new kingdom. And so we'll have some sort of service. And you can see that kind of laid out in Scripture where it describes us as being a priesthood in heaven. So there's still going to be worship services going on. But if there's going to be worship service, then there's going to be worship leaders. And if there's going to be worship service, somebody's got to put out communion, right? Somebody's got to set up all the things, and somebody's got to be running sound for these billions of people that are in heaven, right? I don't know exactly what all the details of that's going to look like, but there's going to be real service that we can do for God in heaven. We're going to be living in heaven. It's eternal life. We also recognize this, that when we are there, we will actually, in verse 4, we will see God's face. We're going to actually get to see God's face. This is, this is so cool for us. We have a belief that is not based on sight. We have witnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, and we trust those witnesses. We have the witness of the Word of God that tells us the story of how God has worked all throughout history. But as for me, and I would imagine for all of you, we've never seen the face of our God. We've worshiped him at a distance, but it's going to become real for us. We will see God face to face. When I was in um, uh, high school, I had just come to faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, believe it or not, I really thought deeply about these things, and I had all these theories on how it all worked together. Eventually, I read the Bible and got the truth, but uh, I, I started out with this faith of, in Jesus Christ, and I tried to figure out how it all went together, and for me, the weakest link was faith. It was just this idea that I couldn't see God. So I have this assignment that I have to do in English class in high school, and all of us had to write what is going to be on our tombstone. Well, of course, high school kids are like, first of all, I ain't ever going to die because I am I'm indestructible, right? We all found out that's not true later on in life. Uh, but most of the guys in our class are writing things like, here lies the greatest BMX rider ever. Here lies the richest man ever to live. And so all these kind of like grand things that people are going to do with their life. But I'm a new believer at this point trying to sort all of this stuff out in my head. And what I write is, finally, I get to see what I believe. It's this moment where it was just like this, this, this reality for me that this is what eternity is going to allow me. It's this long-awaited thing that I've been waiting for since high school. And now here I am. 20-ish plus, quite a few years outside of high school, 24 years, no, 28 years, a long time out of high school. I graduated in 92, somebody else can do the math. A long time out of high school, right? And I'm still hoping for that day. I'm still waiting for that day where the things that I take by faith, I'm going to see with my eyes. I'm going to see the face of my God. I'm going to worship Him, not at a distance, but face to face, and how powerful that is for us. Uh, you take the next step in that verse, and it also tells you that His name, the name of God, will be on our foreheads. 
Uh, there's a couple of things that are interesting about that. Number one, I think of it in terms of ownership, as in we belong to Him. And so I think that's powerful. I still love uh, that movie Toy Story, and I use this illustration all the time because it really is that powerful. It's the theme of the movie, but Woody had Andy's name written on his foot, and he knew he belonged to Andy. He belonged to somebody. And there was something in that belonging that was powerful to him. And it's like that for us. But the other thing that I think is cool is there's no hypocrites in heaven. That every face I look at is going to have God's name above it. I will know everybody who claims to be a believer in heaven is actually a believer. There's no hypocrisy there. Everyone I run across will be just like me, a worshiper of God. And I will see it on their face. How cool is that? Anyway, uh, so our name, in some way, his name will be on our foreheads. Uh, we've already talked about this idea that there will be no night in heaven because the glory of God will be illuminating it. Uh, but then in verse 5, it ends with this idea uh, that they will reign forever and ever. And so it's not enough to say that God is going to reign forever. It's going to say it twice. So it's twice forever. It's forever. And if forever isn't long enough, it's forever and ever. That's like two times the forever, right? It's a long time. It's this idea of eternity that's trying to be laid out for us. So that's then kind of the closing idea here of what it'll be like in heaven. But the book then closes out with uh, an angelic being and with Jesus saying, the things in this prophecy are true. So that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 6. But before I do that, I have to tell you about one of the difficulties of Revelation chapter 22. It's the only chapter I know that's like this. Um, but if you have what's known as a red-letter edition of the Bible, uh, you'll know it right away because every time Jesus speaks, it'll be in red. And so you'll know these words are assigned to Jesus. Well, that gets really confusing in Revelation chapter 22 because the Greek doesn't clearly define when somebody's speaking or who is speaking. And in most cases in Scripture, it's really easy. You just kind of follow the pronouns, and eventually you can figure out who's speaking. But in Revelation 22, it's really confusing. So you have some versions of the Bible that are red-letter versions that'll say only this verse, this verse, and this verse are assigned to Jesus. And then you'll have another one that'll say this whole section here is assigned to Jesus. And then you'll have another one that says this whole section here is assigned to Jesus. And so it's a little bit confusing in Revelation. And so like in mine, in the NASB, verse 7 is Jesus, verse 12 is Jesus, and then verse 16 is Jesus, and uh, then verse 20, a snippet of verse 20 is Jesus. In the New Living Translation, verse 12 through 20 is basically Jesus. And so it really just kind of depends how the translators have done their best to interpret who that is. So I thought to myself, if they all couldn't figure it out, surely I can, right? Uh, and so what I did is I kind of took all the English words and I put them on my computer. I got rid of the red letters, and then I took all the quotation marks out because in the Greek, there's, there's no punctuation that shows quotation. So you really just have to gather that from the reading. And then I read through that and I tried to figure out where the natural place is to decide who the speaker is. Now, look how confusing it gets. When you start out in verse six, it says, and he said to me, well, who's he? You follow it back to the beginning and he showed me a river, but who's he? And so you have to follow that back all the way to chapter 21, verse 9, when we see one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls spoke with me and saying, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. But is this the same person speaking here? Normally, I would say yes. But it gets really confusing because here it says, and he, and then verse 10, it says, and he, 
But as it continues on with no explanation whatsoever, in verse 7, we're told that this is somehow Jesus, even though He was speaking to me, whoever He is. Uh, Second service, I joked that it actually tells us, it says Andy was speaking to me, Andy said to me. But I didn't know who Andy was either, so that didn't help. Um, (laughs) Verse 12 then, kind of the same thing. There's nothing there to designate that somebody new is speaking, but most Bibles say that verse 12 is Jesus. So you can see kind of how that can get confusing. So I've said, in a general sense, verse 6 through 9 is the angel and John speaking. And in a general sense, verse 10 through 20 is Jesus and John speaking. And so that's how I'm kind of approaching it. Uh, if, you, if you see it differently, that's okay. Because Here's the important part. It's not really about who's speaking here. It's that the message doesn't change. And in this case, the message is this, uh, that uh, Jesus agrees with the angel that this is the true prophecy of God. And by the way, so should you, because there's promises associated with that. And so if Jesus and this angel say that this is a true prophecy, we might want to listen to it. And so that's kind of how that lays out. So we don't want to lose sight of that as I'm trying to explain who's speaking at different times. Don't lose sight of that truth there. So let's start with verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. So now there's a very clear interaction here with John and the angel. There could be some discussion about which angel this is, though. Is this the angel from Revelation chapter 21? Or is this the angel from Revelation chapter 1 who's been showing John all of these visions? So remember in chapter 1, there's this discussion of how this message moves. It's that God revealed to Jesus, who shared it with an angel, who revealed it to John, who revealed it to us. So the reminder is, regardless of who's speaking, whether it's John or the angel or Jesus himself or God the Father, the source of this message is God. And so whether it's red letters or not red letters, it ultimately is being brought to us as the word of God. So that's the important part to catch in this. But anyway, this angel says this in verse 6. I believe it's the angel speaking here or in angel. And he says, these words are faithful and true. The Lord God, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, which is a repetition of the same explanation we get in chapter 1, the things that must soon take place. But this angel here is is saying these things, these words are faithful and true. So when we're looking at the book of Revelation, it has the stamp of approval of an angel of God that these words are faithful and they are true. So now in verse 7, my Bible has this in red letters saying that it's Jesus, although there's nothing in here that says the speaker has changed. We have to take it from the context of what is said. So there's going to be this phrase, and behold, I am coming quickly. 
Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of the book. Well, when we think about this book, who is coming quickly, we generally would think that that's Jesus. Although, oddly enough, if this is the angel from Revelation 21, he's also coming quickly, right? He's a whole part of this. He's pouring out the bowls of wrath. So he's invested in this as well, and he's going to come. But the reason I think that most people would say this is Jesus, and probably myself, I would say this as well, uh, but he says, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy. Jump to verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly. You can see from the context here in verse 13 that this is most likely Jesus speaking in verse 12, and you can clearly see it in verse 20. Yes, I am coming quickly, to which John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So the one who's coming quickly is now Jesus. So there's been a change of speaker here, but the Greek doesn't tell us that. We have to figure it out from the context. You see how, how Bible study is like a, a puzzle, a mystery sometimes? You have to kind of do the work. If you just do a cursory read of things, you're sometimes missing uh, some of the great things that God has in there for us. So with those three statements, though, behold, I am coming quickly, three times in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. Dave, do you see any promises associated with those? Yes, I do. Um, I hope so. We saw him in first and second service, so he doesn't see him now. I don't know. Surprise. Um, In uh, verse 7, it says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So that part comes with a blessing to those who heed the words. So there's one promise, a blessing. Yep. Uh, In verse 12, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. So that one comes with a reward. Verse 12, there's a reward. And the final one, uh, yes, I am coming quickly, is a promise. In and of itself. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming quickly. So we'll look at all three of those. uh, But the the first one there uh, is there is this blessing that comes for those who heed, who keep, who do the things that are in this book. So the angel isn't just saying, or Jesus isn't just saying that these words are true, but he's saying if they're true, you need to pay attention to them. And I'm promising you, If you heed the words of this book, you will be blessed. And blessed is just another way to say that happiness will come your way, a certain spiritual type of happiness. But the blessing of God will be in your life if you heed or keep or do the things that we're told to do in this book. And ultimately, this book is is telling us to trust in Jesus Christ for our eternal destiny. And so if we do those things, we'll be blessed by that. And certainly the biggest blessing is eternal life, right? Now, verse 12 is interesting because what it's promising here is a reward being brought by Jesus, but that reward is associated to our works. So now we have to remind ourselves how salvation works together for us, right? So we understand scripturally that we were saved by grace through faith apart from works. So these works don't earn us salvation. This is just a reward that comes to those who are saved. And so I believe that everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ is immediately going to have a desire to do things for God, that they're going to begin to do things in their life that glorify God. And some people, it'll be an overwhelming desire. Some people, it'll just kind of build throughout their lifetime. But you're going to be building up this long list of great things you've done for God. It'll be the natural offshoot of your faith in God, that you'll just want to do things for Him. The end result of that is you'll be rewarded for those things. Now, we don't do things for the rewards. The rewards are like that benefit. It's just an extra benefit we get because of our salvation 
God's going to then look at us and he's going to look at all the stuff we've done and he's going to reward us for that. Now, this is different than a judgment. A judgment looks at the good things you've done and the bad things you've done and it comes to a conclusion whether you deserve any reward or not. That's not what's happening here. All of our sinful deeds have already been removed by Jesus Christ. So remember last week and the week before we talked about the book of deeds that lists out in the way I just kind of uh, easy for me to remember it is there's basically an accountant angel in heaven assigned to each one of us that writes down everything we think, say, or do. Well, then Jesus, when he dies on the cross and we make a confession of Christ as Lord, that angel then goes through and crosses out all of the sinful things we've ever done, all the evil thoughts we've ever had, or all the terrible words we've ever said. All those things are removed from the book of our deeds. And now, at the end here, when Jesus comes back with a reward for us, all that's left in the book of our life, the good deeds that we've done. Now, that's a book I want to read, right? I don't want to read the list of all the bad things I've done intermixed with the good things. I don't want to, I don't want to hear those things anymore. But man, to sit down and read the book of good deeds, and I understand uh, for myself that it's probably not the most good deeds in the world, right? It's going to be more like a Dr. Seuss book, and, and uh, you know, Sean, Sean has some, it's a children's version, you know, it's going to be a short book, but it's still going to be just kind of this powerful moment where it's going to be this reciting of our good deeds, of the things that we've done for the glory of God throughout our life, and then God will give us a reward for all of those good deeds, and there'll be no mention of our sin our sin is gone. It's forgotten. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. So kind of a powerful moment there. And then that reminder of the third promise here, it's just this repetition of the three times, yes, I am coming quickly. And this is the part that we have to wrap our brains around. Jesus is coming back. He, he really is. The quickly is the part that messes with our brains, right? Like I've lived for 46 years and he hasn't come back yet. This promise was made 2,000 years before I was born. That doesn't feel quick to me because my entire perspective of time is condensed to the 46 years that I've lived. But we're talking about the perspective of an eternal God who has no beginning or who has no end. And for him, time has really no meaning, at least in the way that it does for us. So for him, 2,000 years would seem like nothing because time has no meaning. It's almost like it's all happening, happening simultaneously, and there's some weird physics stuff that you can get into sometime, uh, but I was having a conversation with a physics friend of mine one time, and he was talking about just how physics works in the concept of eternity. He said, Sean, do you understand that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're actually presently in the presence of God in heaven? Uh, I don't understand that. <laughs> But I'm sure you could show me some math that I also wouldn't understand to prove it, right? But so somehow that's how physics works in eternity. Uh, you can check that yourself. I don't even know how to begin to explain that. But um, this idea for Jesus coming quickly also, though, is associated with it's quickly in that it's at the exact right time. You see, Peter talks about this. God is not slow about his promises, as some people count slowness, but he is patient for you so that all who would believe will believe. And so when he comes, he will come quickly, but he's going to come at, right the, at just the right moment after all of those who he knows will believe actually believe. And he won't come a second before that, but he's not going to delay once everything is ready. At the right time when he comes, he's going to come and it's going to be quick. It's going to be just such an amazing event when all of this kind of lays itself out there. So I uh, don't want to spend too much more time on that. We now want to move into this next section 
uh, which I'm saying, just generically speaking, is Jesus putting his stamp of approval on this book. And you can kind of go back and forth, whether it's Jesus or the angel speaking at any given time, uh, but the ultimate idea here is that Jesus is putting his stamp of approval on this book. Uh, he's doing it, though, with some warnings for us. So let's see if we can catch these. Uh, I'm going to read this last whole section here. Uh, I left four minutes for this, so it shouldn't be too hard, right? And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city." Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters uh, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root uh, and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which is written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So we now have this final message, this final testimony of Jesus. And it starts out in verse 10 with this uh, interesting idea that relates back to the book of Daniel where he says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Now in Daniel, we have the exact opposite. In Daniel chapter 8, he's told, he's given all the prophecy of Daniel, and then there's another prophecy given to him, but he's told not to tell anybody about it. He says, seal it up for the end times. Well, now it seems this is likely the prophecy that Daniel saw, but he couldn't tell anybody about. And now John has seen it, and he's being told, now don't seal it up, let everybody see it because the time is near. And so all of this kind of plays itself out as we work forward where Jesus is saying again, I'm coming quickly, and he identifies himself now in verse 13. So we know for sure the person speaking in verse 13 is at the very least God, but likely Jesus because he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, we've seen that before in the book of Revelation. That's been, and I used to identify Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So it seems at least in verse 13, Jesus is speaking, but why wouldn't it connect to verse 12? And if it's connecting to verse 12, why wouldn't it go back all the way to where it said, and he said, that there has to be some introduction to him speaking. You see how that makes more sense, or at least makes more sense to me. Uh, when we say, he said this, then there's going to be a whole long list of things, right? There's going to be a whole long list of things that were said. Well, this seems to me to make the most sense. This is the first place it identifies the speaker in this section, and it seems to identify the speaker as Jesus. So these titles for God, these names for Jesus are listed out there. And that's where it gets confusing again, 
Verse 14, not in red in my Bible. Maybe it is in your Bible, but there's no reason for it. It just stops, like all of a sudden Jesus isn't speaking, where it just continues here, blessed are those who wash their robes. Well, why wouldn't Jesus be saying that? Here's what's great about this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates of the city. Even in this final testimony, there's this reminder that we have an offer of salvation. Uh, If you wash your robes, which we understand scripturally is a, a picture of cleansing ourselves from sin, which came through the death of Jesus Christ. So here we have, even at the end of this book, this invitation. This is the thing about the book of Revelation that people miss. The book of Revelation is intended to be evangelistic. It's intended to encourage people to believe. But we take the opposite sometimes effect when we teach it, and we oftentimes as churches, we avoid this book because we don't want to offend or confuse the unbeliever. This book was written as a warning to the unbeliever, begging them, begging them to follow Jesus Christ so that they can receive the reward, the gift of salvation. It's an evangelistic book, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. Now, there is also in verse 12 this group that's outside. It says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So don't envision this like it's some sort of night of the living dead moment where inside the walls of New Jerusalem, there's all the believers hanging out and it's a great party. And on the outside, you have all the bad people like scratching at the walls. Let me in. Ah, It's not anything like that. These folks are actually in a separate location, right? We've already been told where they are in the previous chapter. They're in the lake of fire. But the idea is the only people who enter the city are those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And everybody who has not is still identified by their sin. They're separate from this. They're outside of God's kingdom. They're outside. They're apart from them. So here we have then at verse 16, Jesus saying, I, Jesus, testify to these things. And it's for who? The churches. Again, my mind is blown away by this concept that churches avoid this book. It just shouldn't be that way. Now, if you've been coming to here for a while, you understand we go through this book sometimes. We've done it in Bible studies. We've done it, I've done it uh, twice now. This is my second time through it preaching. Ron preached through it. I've taught the youth group through it. It's just something we do because we go through all the books. But for some churches, they won't touch this book. But this was written for them. It was written for them. And yet, because they're afraid or because it's difficult to understand, because they don't want to confuse people, they leave people ignorant of the end times, something that we want to avoid. And now here Jesus gives himself or reminds people of who he is as he's the Messiah by using these messianic titles. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah here. And so there's this invitation now in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let everybody who hears say, come. Let everyone who is thirsty, come. Anybody who wants to drink from the river of life for free, come. The book is an invitation to the kingdom of God. Remember the woman at the well? Here she was, she's about to draw, and it's this whole weird scene where people are like, well, Jesus is hanging out alone with a woman, that's not allowed. 
it could give him a bad reputation. And, and so Jesus asks her to draw some water, and then he mentions to her, oh, by the way, I have access to a water that you will never thirst again. And she says, give me some of this water. This is the water. If you're thirsty for the water that you will never thirst again, this is the water. It's the water from the river of life at the beginning of this chapter. It's the water that's listed out here at the end of this chapter as well in verse 17. There's an invitation to drink of the water of God. Uh, it's this powerful idea. And again, in verse 18, I still believe this is Jesus speaking. I think I can prove this one. My Bible has it in black, not in red. But it says in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears. And then he's going to give his testimony but if you look at verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, to which you then see the response, amen, come Lord Jesus. So who's coming quickly? The Lord Jesus. And it says that he's the one who testified to these things. So when it says in verse 18, I testify, that's Jesus. All of this is Jesus testifying to the truthfulness of this, but he also brings this warning. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, and you're welcome, you've now heard them as I've taught them to you, right? This is to you, to everyone who's heard the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. In other words, you will be the recipient of the wrath of God that was designed for the people who are apart from God. And then it also says if anyone takes away from the books of the word of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now, some people would look at this and be afraid that maybe they could uh, say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, and they've suddenly lost their salvation. That's not what's happening here. This is a very dire and important warning to not be adding your own chapters. Like, yeah, there was some confusion between chapter 17 and 18. I just wrote my own chapter of things how I think it should go. Like when you see that kind of stuff, that's messed up, right? This was intended to preserve the prophetic word going forward with this threat. But the reality is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord, you're not going to add to or take away from his word. You're not going to do it. But again, it boggles my mind. If the word is that important, why don't we share it with people? The word of this book was intended to be an encouragement to us. And so we see again in verse 20, this is Jesus testifying that he's coming quickly. And then there's this prayer, this, this desire that's built up in the heart of John, I believe, where he says, amen, which is, I agree. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You can see it in John. Now, John has seen some things, right? John has seen things that none of us have seen. He recorded them as best as he can, but he saw the things in this book. And he's like, all right, I'm ready for the return of Jesus. And it brings to mind this question, do we have built up in our heart a desire for the return of Jesus Christ, or are we so concerned about the things of this world that we think to ourselves, well, I really want Jesus to come, but I wish he would wait until I got my next promotion. Or I would at least like to, to get to retirement before he returns. Or, you know, hey, my daughter's getting married in two weeks. I'd really like to see her get married. So if Jesus, if you could just wait till after the wedding, that would be cool. No. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be built up into our hearts that he would come quickly. It should be a big part of who we are as a believers. And then that final 
uh, encouragement at the end that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with us all. Amen. I agree. So the question as we come to the end of the book of Revelation for you guys is this. Is do you feel different about the end times after going through the book of Revelation? Has that changed your view of the end times? And I'm not specifically talking about theology, although there might be some theological adjustments that you had to make as you go through it, but did it change your view of it? I mean, my first question is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you afraid of the end times now? I'm way less afraid of the end times than I ever was because I understand it so much more clearly now. It seems so purposeful to me now. It seems so productive, like God is accomplishing something. It's not just random wrath thrown out on the earth and, oh my goodness, how could God be so mean? That's not what it is. This is justice for those who deserve it, and it's mercy for those who've asked for it. The end times, they don't scare me like they used to. The other thing that this book has done for me, man, it's increased my hope. Like, there is so much junk in this world that is disturbing. It's just disturbing, and it becomes somewhat overwhelming sometimes. But can you put up with the junk if you know that it's followed by the amazingness of eternity with Jesus Christ, the amazingness of the new kingdom, and the eternal nature of this new life that's apart from all of the junk. It makes the pain more bearable because there's hope that follows it. How does the unbelieving world deal with their desperation? Well, they riot and they rage because they have no hope. They have no hope. Our hope is caught up not in reforming this world, although there's nothing wrong with bringing reform. Our hope is caught up in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm always thankful when I get to the end of a book uh, it just seems like so much has been accomplished, and I can't even uh, begin to imagine what you've accomplished in my life, but also the life of the people who've heard this book over the last 22 weeks. Lord, I know that your word never returns void, so I know you've been actively working in the people of this church, the people who've heard these sermons. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that it would be bringing about the result that it was intended, uh, that there would be some who for uh, whatever purposes as they've heard this passage or they've heard these verses and it's been an invitation to your kingdom for them. Lord, I would pray that this would be evangelistic, that uh, whether it's those who are listening in the room today or online or maybe somebody's going to hear it a hundred years in the future if you tarry, that they would hear this book and they would be encouraged to seek after you for their kingdom. But for the rest of us, Lord, those who are believers... Lord, I pray that you would be continually building up in us a hope for our future eternal life so that we would get to the point where we're so desirous of our eternal life that it's almost like we're, we're like a horse chomping at the bit, just waiting, just hoping, just desiring it, that allows us to get through the difficulties that we have now. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.